Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margot, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast, and if that's you, welcome home. All right, everyone, I just want to say pardon my voice. It feels like I'm losing my voice, so I am really, really sorry. Real quick, I want to say thank you to all my new patrons and Apple Premium subscribers. I saw a little uptick this month and I realized that many people didn't even know I had a Patreon. So if you're one of those people that don't realize that I have extra content and ways to support the show, please be sure to check out patreon.com slash military murder for more content. Also, in case you missed it, we are now a weekly podcast. So be sure to click the follow button wherever you're listening so you never miss an episode. I'm currently fixing to go on a three-week military tour, so I'm going to have to bring my equipment with me as my family came down with the stomach bug last week and it was not a fun week for us. So I didn't get ahead as I had hoped because c'est la vie, but since I promised I was going to be a weekly show, there will be an episode. Quick disclaimer, I know that you've noticed that every episode is a bit different depending on the case. Many of the cases I cover are told in different ways, just depending on what is available. I know that that does not fit everyone's bill, and I think that that's okay. All right, that being said, there's no formula for how long an episode is. I tell the story in however many minutes it takes to get the story out. Some episodes will be close to an hour. Most cases will be about 30 or 40-ish minutes, and others might just be 20 minutes. I'll keep telling the stories that fit the military murder theme. It doesn't matter how long the episode is. With that, today's story is about a serial killer and a serial rapist. But despite the sheer terror that this man caused in the streets, little is known about the perpetrator and about the victims. So despite the fact that I'm telling a serial killer story, there isn't much information out there. But considering I had never heard of the guy, I wanted to bring you the case today. Join me today as I tell you the story of one of the East Bay serial killers and rapists. His name was Anthony McKnight. Now, let's dig in. On October 22, 1984, 24-year-old Felicia Murphy was standing in front of a card club in the East Bay of California. Felicia was a sex worker, or what people used to call a prostitute. I know some people who listen to this podcast hate the term sex worker, but considering that that's the PC term, I will use it throughout this episode, although all the 1980s headlines used other terminology. Anyway, on this night, Felicia was approached by a man and she refused to get in his car. So the man decided to abduct her at gunpoint. Now, Felicia found herself in the man's vehicle where he drove her to an industrial area and then he pulled out a knife, instructing her to get out of the vehicle. Felicia obeyed and she got out of the car and laid on the ground. She did as he told and removed her clothes. As the perpetrator placed the knife on the car about ready to rape Felicia, her instincts took over and she leaped up and grabbed the knife and began to run. Felicia recalled running like her life depended on it because it quite literally did. 
As Felicia ran, she looked for some place to go. She saw a dumpster, she jumped on top of it, and then jumped over a barbed wire fence. Hearing the engine from the car behind her, Felicia wasn't sure if the man was leaving or coming after her. The perpetrator tried to mow Felicia down with his car, but unsuccessful, he drove off. Felicia figured the man was gone for good. But then, as soon as she thought that, the man reappeared. This time, he had a different knife, and he caught her. As he took her down, Felicia questioned, why, why? The perpetrator began to respond to Felicia, saying that some girl had done something to him a long time ago. But then he changed the topic, telling Felicia that she was pretty and that she had heart. He then promised her that he was going to let her go. With that promise, the man placed Felicia back into the car against her will and drove her to a different industrial area. At this new location, Felicia took another opportunity to flee, but the man caught her again. This time, he trapped her and then he stabbed her in the chest. Felicia felt her life ending as she looked up at the stranger and said, are you going to just let me lie here and die? Felicia now bleeding profusely out of her chest wound. The man, unfazed, then forced this bleeding woman to perform oral sex on him. He also raped her as she bled out and in one last move of complete depravity, he slit Felicia's throat. Then he drove off, leaving Felicia to die all alone. But the perpetrator on this night, he chose the wrong victim because while Felicia could have just laid there and died, she mustered what little strength she had to wrap her pants around her neck to keep her from bleeding out. This act, it is said, saved her life. According to the Oakland Tribune, Felicia survived, but she suffered multiple fractures to the face, a broken nose, extensive nerve damage, and potentially permanent blindness to one of her eyes. She also had an 8-inch jagged scar draped across her neck, a painful reminder of what she survived. But while Felicia's account and her description of the perpetrator and his license plate number would help to put the man away much later, the investigation into what happened to Felicia was poorly managed and crucial evidence wasn't taken. And the violent acts that Felicia suffered were prosecuted much later, allowing the perpetrator to strike again. By the way, while Felicia remembered a license plate number, she was off by one number, which also put off finding the perpetrator right away. Yep, if you gulped in disbelief, same. The perpetrator literally kidnapped a woman, attempted to kill her, raped and sodomized her, allowed her to see his face, but he continued to remain at large. So basically, long story short, when Felicia was in the hospital, despite telling authorities that she was raped and sodomized, a rape kit wasn't performed. Additionally, reports say that other crucial investigative steps were not taken, so the perpetrator continued to terrorize the East Bay. In 1986, a 23-year-old sex worker found herself in the vehicle with a man who drove her to an industrial area. Once at the location, the man beat the woman and then dragged her from the car, severely injuring her. When the woman came forward, it turned out the perpetrator had used the same location he used to assault and almost kill Felicia Murphy. This new victim, however, added a very similar detail to one given by Felicia. The perpetrator was wearing green military fatigue pants neatly tucked into his boots during the attack. When authorities got this confirmation, they realized that their serial rapist was likely a man they had their eye on already. 
a man by the name of Anthony McKnight. In 1986, Anthony McKnight was a 33-year-old sailor stationed at Alameda Naval Air Station in California. He joined the Navy in 1982, and some reports say that he had also been a part of the Army at some point, although I'm not sure that's accurate. In 1986, Anthony lived in Oakland, California. He was married with a toddler and a baby on the way. According to the San Francisco Examiner, after a fall on a ship, Anthony requested to be medically discharged from the Navy. It's unclear, however, if he was discharged medically or for disciplinary reasons. His attorney did indicate that he was supposed to be discharged in February of 1986, but, well, we'll see what happens. What I do know is that prior to his involvement in anything, the first crime that Anthony McKnight committed was in 1982, the same year he joined the Navy. In 82, according to court records, Anthony approached a sex worker and offered her $20 for oral sex. It turned out that the sex worker was actually an undercover agent and soliciting a sex worker was illegal. Anthony was charged, convicted, fined, and sentenced to a year of probation. When police compared Anthony McKnight's mugshot to the sketch given by Felicia Murray, it was strikingly similar. After the 1986 assault, authorities obtained a search warrant of Anthony's home, and during the search, they found green fatigue pants that had blood on them. Authorities believed it was the victim's blood, but Anthony told them a different story. He said he got blood in his pants when he was helping an injured friend. The police were down to clown, so they were like, okay, let's confirm this. What's your friend's name? How can we contact this person? But as it turned out, Anthony couldn't remember the friend's name. Upon putting Anthony McKnight in a lineup and having the two victims take part in the lineup, Anthony McKnight was the guy. Felicia Murray could never forget his face. She told the San Francisco Examiner, he was like a monster, like in your dreams. He keeps coming back and chasing you. I'll never forget this guy. Once Anthony McKnight was arrested on January 23, 1986, he was charged with five counts of attempted murder and five counts of attempted rape. He was eventually also charged with the assault on Felicia Murphy. Those charges included attempted murder, rape, attempted sodomy, and oral copulation. So you might be wondering about the other attacks that were under investigation and ultimately charged in 86. Well, they all happened after Felicia Murphy's brutal attack. In 1985, Anthony McKnight allegedly assaulted a 22-year-old woman. He beat her to the point where she was unconscious and he shattered her jaw during the attack. The woman was brutalized so badly she couldn't speak. So while she was recovering at the hospital, in an effort to speak to detectives, she had to squeeze a detective's hand to represent letters of the alphabet. On October 21st, 1985, Anthony allegedly beat a 38-year-old woman with a tire iron. He then raped her. The woman survived, but only after she climbed into a drainage ditch and played dead. That same year, two sex workers agreed to have sex with Anthony in exchange for $40. Anthony drove the two of them to a secluded area. Once there, Anthony stabbed the 22-year-old and 25-year-old woman. And then, in January of 1986, a 23-year-old woman voluntarily entered into Anthony's car. But once she got a good look at him, she began to panic. You know why she began to panic? She began to panic when she realized he had assaulted her four years earlier. 
The woman tried to jump out of the car, but Anthony dragged her back in and raped and beat the woman. While authorities thought that Anthony McKnight had many more victims, those victims didn't survive. And because it was the mid-80s and DNA evidence was still in its infancy, there wasn't much to tie Anthony McKnight to the murders without victim testimony or without any witnesses. So, in 1987, the state of California proceeded with a trial against Anthony McKnight, but only in the cases of attempted murder. At the trial, Anthony's attorney, Spencer Strellis, argued there was no evidence that Anthony McKnight was the perpetrator. According to him, at the time of Anthony's arrest, sex workers were getting beaten, raped, and killed all over the country, and especially in California. I mean, clearly the defense attorney was talking like a defense attorney back then, he appeared to be demeaning the victims in these cases because of their employment and life choices. Enough of the women were able to testify and Anthony McKnight was convicted of 11 counts including attempted murder, mayhem, kidnapping, and forced oral copulation for his attack on sex workers between 1984 and 1986. For his crimes, Anthony McKnight was sentenced to 63 years in prison. But little did he know he wouldn't be getting away that easily because with time came DNA evidence. When I was looking into Anthony McKnight, I realized some articles referred to him as the East Bay Rapist or the East Bay Serial Killer. So of course, I tried looking up information using those names or titles, and what I discovered is that there are many serial killers who were referred to by those nicknames. For example, there was some guy named Charles Arnett Stevens, a 20-year-old who terrorized the East Bay from April 3rd to July 27, 1989, when he went on a random shooting spree near Interstate 580 in Oakland. He killed four people, tried to kill six more, and was ultimately sentenced to death. I was reading that article and thinking, well, that's not Anthony McKnight. Well, then there was the other guy in 1993 known as both the East Bay serial killer and the Daystalker. This guy attacked and killed elderly women in the San Leandro Hayward area. He ultimately killed three women and was sentenced to death. I was reading that story and thought, well, that's not Anthony McKnight. But dang, there are a lot of serial killers in California working around the same time. Anyway, after Anthony McKnight's 1987 conviction, a task force came together between a few police departments. They were located in Richmond, Emeryville, Berkeley, the East Bay Regional Parks District, and Oakland. This task force came together because they had some homicides with striking similarities. And the thing about those similarities were that they also mimicked the attacks by Anthony McKnight. The only difference was that these victims didn't survive and they weren't all sex workers, but all the victims had been raped before their deaths. So brace yourselves because these are more horrific crimes that I'm about to tell you about. On June 26, 1999, yes, I'm talking a decade after McKnight's conviction, the San Francisco Examiner ran the following headline, quote, DNA trail points to 1985 killings, end quote. The article was written by Marsha Ginsburg. The article read, a former Oakland Navy sailor whom police have long suspected in a four-month killing spree of two girls and three women in 1985 has been indicted by a grand jury for the crimes after DNA technology linked him to them. Anthony McKnight has denied involvement in any of the murders, but he also denied involvement for the crimes for which he is serving his sentence. 
Authorities said DNA technology, which was improving week by week, identified McKnight as the killer of the following girls. 17-year-old Diane Stone, 13-year-old Talita Dixon, 18-year-old Monique Davis, 24-year-old Beverly Ann Bryant, and 22-year-old Betty Lynn Stewart. The reason it took so long to directly point to Anthony McKnight is that authorities were being patient and wanted to wait on technology, which honestly is amazing in my opinion because I am so impatient, but I know that cases take time. I've tried to find as much information as possible online about these victims, but this is the little bit that I was able to gather, and it's from the San Francisco Examiner. 22-year-old Betty Lynn Stewart was the mother of a six-year-old. On September 20th, 1985, Betty and her sister went to a friend's barbecue, and then they walked home around midnight for Betty's sister Diane to get a jacket. When they arrived at the house, Betty waited outside while Diane ran inside quickly to grab her jacket. When Diane returned, Betty had vanished. Her body was discovered two days later at the Berkeley's Aquatic Park. She had been raped and her throat had been cut. Our next victim is 17-year-old Diane Stone. Diane Stone was last seen by her mother, who gave her $150 as Diane headed to the Bayfair Mall. Diane vanished on her mall shopping trip and her body was found near the John Marshall School in Oakland. She had been raped, stabbed dozens of times, and her throat had been cut. Diane's body was found a week after Betty's body was found. Our third victim is 13-year-old Talita Dixon. She was the youngest known victim. And reports differ as to her disappearance. One article says she disappeared while she was walking to school, and another says she disappeared while she was walking to her dad's house. The only consistent thing is that Talita's mother recalls that on October 5, 1985, Talita told her mom goodbye as she left her house, and her mother felt an unexplainable feeling of sadness as Talita said goodbye and left. During her walk, Talita vanished, and her body was discovered three days later by a jogger near a walking path in Redwood Regional Park. Talita had been raped, beaten, and stabbed. Her neck was broken and one of her arms had been ripped out of the socket. The fourth victim was 18-year-old Monique Davis. She was a childcare worker and she was last seen leaving her job on December 5, 1985. She vanished and was found four days later badly beaten to death behind a warehouse in Richmond. And the last known victim was 24-year-old Beverly Ann Bryant. She was found deceased two days before Christmas 1985. Her body was found at an elementary school. She had been badly beaten, raped, and died due to blows to the head. Once the charges were filed in 1999, the victims' families figured, well, now that we've waited 14 long years, things will probably start moving along quickly. But they were sadly mistaken because it would take close to another decade before the case would finally be prosecuted. CBS 5 reported that from 1999 through 2007, there were roughly 90-plus court appearances by Anthony McKnight, but that due to attorney turnover, the case kept getting put off from one person to the next, which made justice move ever so slowly for the victims' families. But during the years, the case continued as a death penalty case, which is not surprising. Finally, in July 2008, Anthony McKnight's trial for killing five people 23 years earlier finally began. At trial, McKnight's attorney tried to argue that the evidence was circumstantial and even if his DNA was found in some of the victims, 
That didn't prove anything because apparently some of the victims were sex workers. The prosecutor quickly was like, yeah, DNA doesn't really lie. Considering it was semen and it identified him as one in 27 billion people. I guess at this trial, Anthony McKnight really had nothing to lose. So he took the stand in his own defense. On the stand, he was like, I have never seen any of these girls or women in my life. Never met them, never came across them. It couldn't have been me. He was like, yeah, in 1982, I screwed up when I tried to pick up a sex worker. But that was my only offense. You know, the one where he actually got arrested. And the prosecutor pointed out how unlucky McKnight was to have been caught the one and only time he solicited a sex worker. Poor, poor you. Anthony McKnight reiterated that he took the stand to clear his name. He said that regardless of what anybody wanted to believe, he had to defend himself because he was innocent. McKnight tried to argue that it was not his DNA and that DNA was simply statistics. Oh boy. During closing arguments, the prosecution made sure to show the jury pictures of the victims before their death and after their encounter with Anthony McKnight. When it was time for the jury to deliberate, they had a lot to review. It was a 23-year-old cold case solved with new DNA technology, but they had a guy on the stand saying it wasn't him. The jury tried to come to a consensus, but came out and told the judge they were deadlocked. They were asked to continue to deliberate, and ultimately, they agreed on a verdict. On September 17, 2009, then 54-year-old Anthony McKnight was found guilty of five counts of first-degree murder with five special circumstances to bring it up to death penalty standards. Three of the special circumstances included committing murder during the course of rape. One was for committing murder during the course of a sodomy, and one was for committing multiple murders. The jury's job was still not over. Now they had to decide, should Anthony McKnight die for his crimes? Survivors and victims' families came out in droves and they wanted to make statements at this sentencing hearing. One of Anthony's survivors discussed her attack and how she almost died at the hands of the perpetrator. The prosecutor showed pictures of the woman after McKnight left her for dead. Her eyes were swollen shut, she had a broken jaw, and she had a tube in her throat. And sadly, she was one of the lucky ones who survived. Can you imagine being left for dead and then being considered a lucky one? The deceased victim's family members also had their moment to talk about their trauma. They won't be having dinner or living life with their loved ones. They're missing out on holidays and birthdays and anniversaries, all because Anthony McKnight took their lives. Diane Stone's sister, Ethera Clemens, she looked at McKnight and said, quote, I had made peace with the fact that she was gone, but it has now all come back. I don't know why you killed her or why it had to be such a brutal act. I just hope you pray to God for forgiveness, end quote. During the sentencing argument, the prosecutor appeared to have gotten a knot in his throat, to which the defense objected to, stating that it was inappropriate for the prosecutor to show emotion and try to influence the jury. The judge considered the objection, and Judge Horner didn't believe the prosecutor was trying to influence the jury with the quiver of his mouth. Judge Horner was like, listen, we're human. We can't expect attorneys to be robots. It's excusable. On October 20th, 2008, the jury recommended Anthony McKnight receive the death penalty, and Judge Horner agreed. When the judge handed down the sentence, ABC7 reported that Anthony McKnight audibly laughed. Can you imagine all them years later and he laughs at the judge? The judge pointed to the fact that McKnight's victims weren't just murdered, they were butchered. 
When asked if he wanted to make a statement, Anthony McKnight simply threw his hands in the air and declined. After his sentence, Anthony McKnight was transferred to San Quentin's death row. But an execution date would never come for Anthony McKnight because on October 17, 2019, at 9.30 p.m., McKnight was found unresponsive in his prison cell. He was pronounced dead at 10.09 p.m. Several sources reported that the cause of death was pending, but the cause has never been reported, or not that I could find online. He was 65 years old at the time of his death. Anthony McKnight's youngest victim was Talita. After his death, Talita's mother, Marsha Dixon Showers, spoke to Fox 40. She said that after her eldest was murdered, she could never trust again, and she became an overprotective mom of her remaining children. When notified of Anthony's death in prison, she said in part, quote, I don't think there will ever be closure, but I thank God for allowing me to live to see this day that he's actually gone from this earth. I thank God for that because so many people didn't get the chance to see that, end quote. This is one of those cases where I wish I knew more information about the victims, about the perpetrator, about the motive, but it just appears that Anthony McKnight was a serial killer. Nothing is said about his wife or his kids or his military service, which leaves me wondering, why did he do what he did? But I guess even if he ever did speak, it wouldn't really matter. The fact is that he got what he deserved and thank goodness for DNA evidence. We are seeing a lot more cold cases getting solved now and I'm here for that. Okay, I just want to give a quick shout out to Elizabeth who researched this case for me. I just want to say welcome and thank you so much. My resources for today's case include various articles found in San Francisco Gate, The Tribune, The San Francisco Examiner, Fox 40, ABC 7, The Oakland Tribune, and CBS 5. Military Murder is a Mama Margot production. The theme music was created by Tyops. If you're interested in supporting the show, be sure to join me either on Patreon at patreon.com slash militarymurder or on the Apple Premium channel, where for as little as $5, you get access to 40 bonus episodes. With that, I'll see you later. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of, so remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week, and I'll keep digging to bring you another military murder story next week. working on our podcast.